when it did come out initially they did this amazing guerrilla marketing campaign where they just had the posters up and it was like who is Kaiser Soze I was like who is Kaiser Soze who is Kaiser Soze nobody knows this is a real time capsule piece as well in that sense it stands up there alongside some of the greatest twists like The Sixth Sense or Psycho where you mentioned uh, Hitchcock Psycho and Hitchcock so I don't know could you could you show this film now without people knowing Welcome to the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club, a crime world special where we'll be discussing our favourite gangster films with special guests. Each week, we'll choose two movies from our top ten to review, to rate and to remember. But we want your thoughts too, so go on to our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram to vote for your favourites and be in with a chance to win tickets to a special live show and party. This week, Crime World researcher Claude Amini is chatting with the Sunday World's Deirdre Reynolds and TV presenter Fanula Jay about Goodfellas and the usual suspects. This is the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club, only on Crime World. So Fanula, you are probably more used to being this side of the microphone than that side of the microphone uh, as your presenter on Virgin Media, but you also have your own brand new podcast, Flop Culture. What is Flop Culture? Flop Culture is whatever you want it to be. That's what I say to people, but it's generally all about flops. So movies that did terribly, albums that weren't maybe necessarily a commercial success, but maybe has have found a new fan base in other ways. Some people have gone really specific with their flops. I have an episode on a particular chocolate bar that potentially derailed a celebrity's career. Um, so it's kind of very, very open to interpretation. I just asked my de- guest to come with their idea of a failure within pop culture and uh, we shoot the breeze about it. It's great fun and I'm learning a lot about things that I never would have encountered otherwise uh, without the podcast. You need to know what the chocolate bar is. Cabri Snowflake, do you remember oh, it? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, derailed poor Anthea Turner's what? career They're and like, the original Spawn Con. It's a great <laughs> episode, go listen to it. So good. So I guess one film that we won't be seeing on flop culture hopefully is Goodfellas because that is one of the most iconic films, not just among film lovers and among people who are into crime, but just just why is it why is it so popular? Why is it such a big film? Why does everyone love it? I just think it's so immersive. Even watching it back, you're just so brought into their lives and the world in a way you never would be as an ordinary and in inverted commas person. And it's also, it's just full of antiheroes and everybody loves an antihero. You know what I mean? You've three of the strongest antiheroes probably in cinema in Jimmy, Henry. And just, it's, it's so, I just, I love just getting lost in that world and just experiencing it all it's so good because mm. what I actually found about the film was when we meet, go along and we, we, we're looking at the different perspectives of, of the crime from Henry's perspective he's the, narrative, he's the narrator originally we're seeing all the glitz and glam and the fun of it but then as soon as his wife Karen takes over the narration you kind of get to see the dirty grimmer side of what kind of the, the malls are kind of putting up with and, and as she says in the film it, she kind of sees it as you know, um, blue collar crime. They're kind of just, it's kind of like that Pat Mustard and Father Ted. Like I didn't want to fill out the forms. The money was mine anyway. They're kind of just doing something. The money was resting in my account. Exactly, exactly. So we kind of see that as well. So tell us a little bit about the characters then. We've obviously got Henry Hill who is based on the real life gangster. Um, How is his story told in the film? Henry and just Ray Liotta as Henry is 
it's so it's a match made in heaven mm-hmm. uh, just becomes enamoured with crime as a kid and wanting to be a part of wanting to be a gangster wanting to be a part of that mob life his family are horrified sure enough he's immersed into it then dressing in the suits the glitz the glam and again initially he doesn't really see the more grotesque side of things the violence the the actual crimes being committed and stuff it's just it's so funny seeing his transformation and seeing the kind of glimmer go from his eyes as he gets more immersed into it he goes through his marriage with Karen and realizing that you know his friends aren't his friends and he can't really trust anyone and you know it's kind of it was easy for him to get in it's not as easy to get out as the movie transpires Mm, and as we see kind of in real life as well the kind Mm. of you know um reality reflected in the headlines and stuff like that it's it's very easy for people to be groomed into crime but then you know not so easy especially when there's those family ties there another character that's in the film Tommy DeVito played by Joe Pesci incredible character probably one of my favorites he's such a volatile character but he's so funny how do you think kind of the film gets away with that kind of humor because it seems like he's the only real comic relief in the whole thing God, they do strike a good balance with it, don't they? Mm. Even when you think of that restaurant scene and how they like marry that tension with, and it's the first kind of real interaction with tension that we have in the movie where it's mm. like something really bad's going to happen here. Someone's going to die. Someone's, you think they're friends. It's all a laugh. No, it's not. Somebody's getting shot. And then it's like, ha, only messing. We're all grand. And seeing his, I suppose, kind of, his derailing and him becoming more and more unstable. You know, he's shooting Spider in the feet and then Spider makes another kind of innocent, harmless, semi-harmless joke and it's just like, right, you're dead. It's it's a very it's a very fine balance because it is it is quite a funny movie while also being this really funny dark crime tale. Funny how? <laughs> funny how? Yeah. Because <laughs> he is very trigger happy and I guess that's what we kind of see as well in the opening scene. There's this hilarious scene where the three of them, the three main characters are kind of driving down the road in the dark and the next of all, there's a banging on the boot. So who is in the boot? Who is in the boot? What is his name again? <laughs> Bats. 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 Yes. Bats. So he ended up in the boot because he made a joke about Tommy shining his shoes, which actually happened in real life. Tommy is based on a real guy. And the guy who was shot was one of John Gotti's men. Um, and it was for the same thing, a joke about, about the shoes. So we see like he's obviously reflecting in as this very volatile character. Tell us a little bit about Jimmy then, Jimmy Conway, who plays, who was played by Robert De Niro. So good. Again, kind of underdeveloped in comparison to the other two. Uh, Brings Henry into this lifestyle is very much kind of like one of the head guys. But even you see throughout the movie then like how close they all are as a family. He's very almost kind of like a dad figure when Mm. Henry rejects his own biological family for the crime family. Um, But again, this you think they're so intertwined, so together, so family they like they are together throughout everything and his journey to being this totally paranoid and also well not even paranoid I suppose more making the decision you know I value the money over you guys bye bye I'm gone but then also you see him kind of uh, reckoning with uh, Tommy's death it's he's very interesting despite the fact that he's not really as as explored as much as the other two Mm -hmm. um but it's it's kind of sad as well to see his ending and see him go the way he goes, you know, when he's threatening Karen. And it's just, oh, you again, It's you shouldn't root for these people, but you kind of are, like, yeah. Henry's ending kind of seems just, but, like, 
there's something with Jimmy where you're just like, I just, I wish you could have kept it together and we could have all been this happy, weird crime family and I could have just watched you going to restaurants and having this time and being pals. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you shouldn't root for these people and yet you kind of are. Like, yeah. why is that? Yeah. That's the magic of the film, isn't it? Like, they are the good fellas, even though they're, very much not good fellas, you know. Bad fellas, yeah. but they are they are very good. And from the very opening, you know, scene, I don't know if I even have this right so long since I watched it, but you know, when he goes, you know, as far back as I can remember, I always I wanted, wanted to be a gangster. gangster yeah. yeah. You're just sucked on the journey along with him, sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other characters that I feel is under underexplored, I have to go into the female representation of the film. Obviously it is good fellas, but one thing we touched on in previous episodes was that you know, is the, the the female character in this film justifiably there or is she there as like a sex symbol? No, I don't think so because obviously Karen takes over the narration and as you mentioned earlier on, she's there to show the other side. But then the other interesting thing with her is, as we see with a lot of the characters, she gets enveloped into the life in a way that she never thought she would and really embraces that mob lifestyle in a way that you know, Henry's family weren't horrified by when he came in the suit and the scene and the shoes and he's like, what do you think, Ma? That scene is so good. And she's like, you look like a gangster. It's so good. I mean, obviously, look, you've Debbie Mazar's character and the other mistresses. Like, I think yeah. they are there probably for that purpose. So, in I think I think there's a bit of yes and no, but like characters, uh, Karen even is one of the greatest characters of all time, I think. I'm just enamoured yeah. with her. Mm, she is a really good character and I, like I said like when she takes over that narration she really shows us the gritty side of it all but you're kind of are feeling sorry for her as well I found you know you know nearly when um Henry is busted and they ha he has the sixty thousand dollars worth of cocaine hidden in the house and she packs it down the toilet because she's like you know the FBI were coming and I kind of felt so sorry for her because I'm like what did you expect her to do he was like that was all our money that was all our money and she kind of gets the short end of the stick as well and that she's put up with all of this stuff and then all of a sudden he's got these mistresses and she's kind of put on the back burner yeah there's a thing I suppose that's like why why didn't you leave and then but that's the thing it's like you can't leave once you're in you're in and I suppose it was kind of fate in that way once she met Henry mm. and even started her her dalliance with him this is it for life mm. and then you have the complications of and I suppose seeing them deal with you know they're expanding their family and the kids having to deal with the fallout you know there's a, a specific interaction with herself and Henry and they're throwing lamps at each other and the daughters and you're kind of laughing you are kind of laughing then you remember their daughters looking from the side of the room when Henry's in jail and she's coming to deliver the drugs so he can sell them and she they're having another fight and the kids are there it's just and again that specific moment where she's flushing the drugs down the toilet and she's like there is a moment where she's probably like, how did my life come to this? And my life is always going to be like this in mm -hmm. some way. I'm never, ever going to be able to separate myself from this, even though I'm not directly involved in some ways. It's just because I fell in love with this guy. And she is in love with him, I think, mm -hmm. is the other difficult thing. It's not just that she's she loves the lifestyle. She does. She sees the benefits of it. But she loves Henry as well. It's why she didn't shoot him in the head when she had the chance, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, we do see her bringing smuggling drugs into the prison. They they go to prison because they get in, the, the basically what happened was they went to get money from a 
gambler who owed them a debt. Turns out that the 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 the, the guy, his sister, was a typist for the FBI. So they end up getting you know time behind bars. And while they're in prison, they have this real like la- it like looks nice. They're like in this room together. They're cooking. She's she's smuggling them in like their meats and their wines, and they're having all these fine dining experiences together. But then we do see the other side of of it as well is that she's obviously taking in these these drugs and everything. So tell us then a little bit about um, the the main, I guess the main crime in this film, the, what this what this film is based on is a real incident that happened. Um, it was a robbery at JFA, JF Kennedy Airport in New York in 1978 and where it was at the time one of the biggest heists in American history. Do we see that play out in the film? He's They're based out of Idlewild. Idlewild? Why is that so hard to say? There's too many L's. They're based out of that airport. So there's a lot of... That's where that's where it starts from there, isn't it? And then it's like... But the, the crimes, I suppose, there's this butterfly effect or like ripple effect where everything gets so much bigger. And, you know, it starts with that. But it always just starts with that. And then people are dying and people are killed. And you see Henry having to deal with the ramifications of that. And he's nearly getting sick as it's happening. And he's like, this is not not what I signed up for. I signed up for the suits and the glitz and the glamour. And then you move on to the third act where he's just essentially dealing and doing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of drugs. Like, yeah. it's just bananas. Because we do, we do see him go from this kind of high end, everyone does things for me. Like, he has henchmen to literally going and like kind of almost cutting the drugs himself in, in one of the apartments with his mistress. The indignity of it all. <laughs> I know, I know. Could you imagine? Um, I don't think the Kennedy's got their own drugs. <laughs> so we see, um, coming near the end of the film, there is this moment where, you know, Paulie kind of tells him to stay away from from uh, Jimmy. Why is that? Why? What, what's happening here as we kind of go through near the end of the, of the film? There's been a heist and they've all been involved and Jimmy is kind of cracked that if he whacks them all off, he'll be able to take the money and also it'll be less likely that it can be pinned on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of, he starts doing that and we have all of these scenes of people just being dead in various nefarious ways. Um, and then we have the incident with Tommy where Tommy thinks he's going to be become a made man, which essentially means becoming a mafia boss, which I didn't realise that it was furiously Googling throughout. Sorry crime people um, he thinks he's going to be a made man he ends up being killed uh, in retaliation for the bats killing uh, Jimmy's out with Henry and it all seems fine he gets a call finds out what's happened to Tommy absolutely loses it and then it's just further like I've killed all my all of my friends bar two the other one has now been whacked off I'm left with Henry who is kind of this other similarly volatile paranoid person what am I going to do? Like it's, and you see him, that scene with Karen, because I kind of wasn't expecting that when I initially watched. I wasn't expecting that initial turn. And that's like seeing that turn with Jimmy, you're just, it's so hard, especially when you think back to those scenes of them on the holidays and, you know, he's throwing water over Henry's face and it's all hijinks and they're all good Mm -hmm. friends. And seeing him knowing what he could do to Karen and that he's thought about it and that he wouldn't really have any major qualms about doing it. And the same with Henry. It's just... It's so disheartening. I'm so confused. I need to go back and watch this film. I think I was probably about 15 or 16. None of this is ringing any <laughs> bells with me. I'm sorry. But it is like, it, you know, we do see near the end of the film then that it's kind of like he, what happens to, to what happens to Henry is what happened in real life. He ends up going into witness protection. Why, why did he end up doing that? 
I think he just knew that he would never, ever be able to escape this. He knew there was a target on his back. And it, but it's so funny to go back to what the initial advice Jimmy gave to him when he got into some trouble initially as a kid before he was fully brought into the family. And Jimmy was like, don't talk shit and something about don't rat out your friends, basically. I'm paraphrasing poor Robert De Niro somewhere rolling his eyes, but it's basically don't rat, uh, don't rat, whatever. And then he's going out and he's ratting on his friends because he knows that's the only way he'll ever be able to put a stop and put an underline to this. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Don't rat on your friends. Mm. Thank you. But then (laughs) it's in there somewhere somewhere (laughs) rattling around uh, my brain with all my other useless pop culture knowledge. Um, And then you have him seeing that I have to rat on my friends. I have to... I have to stick it on Jimmy. Otherwise, like, my kids are in danger. He saw the threat that was already put on Karen and realises it's probably the biggest sacrifice in his mind that he has to make throughout the entire movie because for Henry, it's like the worst crime he can commit is being an ordinary person, being a normal guy, being a Joe Soap. And by going into witness protection, like that's he's giving up this glamorous lifestyle or what he thought was glamorous to be this ordinary person and seeing him at the end in his normal house, getting his newspaper, getting his uh, egg noodles and mm. ketchup and just being like, you can tell... He's he. I feel like he's going to find his way back in some way. But yeah, it was just kind of inevitable, I suppose, for him the minute he said, I want to be a gangster for as long as I've known I want to be a gangster. And where does you think this film falls for you and kind of the, the ranking of Martin Scorsese films? Do you think it's his best of all time? Do you think it's one of the best films of all time? I, it's absolutely one of the best films of all time. And I think it's one of his best, even kind of in even doing research for this, because I wouldn't be cinephile film buff by any means seeing you know the callbacks to Psycho and the way he did certain scenes the use of music throughout you know like the love songs charting him and Karen's relationship the third act with the drugs the the music getting more kind of caught up and frenetic it's just it's a, a real masterpiece in filmmaking even beyond the plot how good the characters are how immersive it is how good it looks, cinematography, mm. everything like that. It's just, it's incomparable, really. Mm. I'd argue it is his best film because I suppose I'll probably be shot for saying this on this podcast, but I probably have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Scorsese. I find some of his work very frustrating, like Silence and The Irishman. Bloody hell, like knocking out. Well, The Irishman, and, oh really? my God, what a taxing, taxing time. Live. Yeah. Have you watched The Irishman? Yes. Okay, I've only got through the first, you know, the way somebody broke it down on Twitter into episodes. So after I was... <laughs> As wa- it should have been done. Yeah, yes. Yes. I was like, I need to watch this. So I've, I've started with episode one and, well, we're getting there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those... And, like you said, it's one of these cinema. It's, you know, a great moment in in cinematography. For the first time I watched Goodfellas, I was on an airplane, tiny screen, oh. headphones in, and I was like, I don't like because I was like, everyone says this is the best film ever. I was like, what? I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> and there's only one who went back and actually watched it on a television with actual sound and actual, you know, on a big screen. I was like, oh, mm. I get it now. And once I kind of realised as well of of how kind of life imitates art in the sense of that it's so you know, based on, on real life. Mm. But again, it's it's one of those films where we can kind of see, um, yeah, life imitating art in, in the sense of people being groomed into drugs and, and, and into that kind of fantasy world and not being able to get out of it. Yeah. Which brings us to um, another gang film, which is, uh, I think this is more for fans of mystery and thrillers. Okay. There's definitely the aspect of um, the, the gangland there, which is the gangsters, like in Pulp Fiction. Um, but it's The Usual Suspects. The usual suspect, as categorized, I suppose, as a neo-noir, I would say, as you, you rightly mm-hmm. say, or a thriller or a mystery. So 
probably probably kind of cheating a bit here with this one, but anyway, nonetheless, we'll go with it. Um, so yeah, this came out in it was 1995, I think, and I suppose it's known more for the twist. I guess, rather than the actual plot or yes. the story. Now, I don't know what statute of limitations is on spoilers for these films, but we're, we're what, like 27? It's fine. 27 it's years fine. We're going to assume everyone has watched yeah. these films. Yeah. <laughs> and if you haven't watched it, stop everything. Go and watch it. Come back and listen to this then afterwards. This is going to be spoiler-tastic. Um, so I suppose it's also known, it it's maybe stands out of this list as well because it was like a shoestring budget. It was super low budget. It was not very like sophisticated in a mm. way and it was all about the the storyline the plot the screenplay which won an oscar christopher Macquarie, and then obviously as well as goodfellas one of the best kind of ensemble casts of all time i would argue actually these are two really good companion pieces mm. i think because mm-hmm. they have a lot in common in terms of the narration and um yeah just things like that i guess so um so it started with an idea, actually, which was the lineup scene. Christopher McQuarrie mm. and uh, Brian Singer, the director, had just this image in their head. And actually, I think he got even the title of The Usual Suspects from an article that he read in another magazine somewhere. Um, and they built it all around this this idea of how did these guys come together? How did they meet? What's their backstory? So, And that's where the film obviously start, the film starts at the end. Again, isn't that much like Goodfellas as well, where yeah. they basically show you the, the ending? At the the murder first and yeah. then brings them back to his childhood Which I and love, all the way I through. I just love that because, you know, so they're, they're showing you what happens at the end and as we know now with the spoiler, they're literally showing you who Kaiser Soze is at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. and then they're trying to spend the next hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, trying to convince you that none of that is true. Yeah. <laughs> Until in the last 10 minutes ago, actually, yeah, no, we got you. It wasn't, you were right the first time. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that um, that kind of lineup scene. So the opening scene is, we've got Gabriel Byrne. He is on a boat. Uh, he's We see him kind of lighting a cigarette and burning down this boat. And there's a mysterious man kind of on the deck above yeah. him. Um, tell us a little bit about that opening scene because so it's been- very eerie. Yeah, it's great. And it's so 90s. Oh my God, this film is so 90s. From the very opening credits, you see the, the ripple of light across the water and the really heavy soundtrack going there in the background. Mm. So yeah, as you're right to say, you see Gabriel Byrne uh, and you see this shadowy figure up on kind of a balcony. He's been described as kind of like a Dick Tracy. I always think he reminds me more of like an Inspector Gadget type with the hat mm, and yes. the trench coat. Um, and so as we learn, this is supposedly Kaiser Soze, uh, the, the villain of the film, the, the one of the I think he's been ranked the 47th best baddie or something of all time, which is a bit low for my liking, actually. Um, so they, Gabriel Byrne goes to, he's obviously in a very compromising position. He He's effectively going to blow, blow the ship up, essentially. So he strikes a match and he throws it onto a, a stream of fuel, which we then see a lovely um, somebody urinating from above <laughs> and quenching the, the flame and then approaching... Gabriel Byrne, uh, a.k.a. Keaton, and shooting him in the head, essentially. But there's a bit of back and forth between them. So uh, this is Kaiser Soze. Obviously, Dean, uh, Dean Keaton is Gabriel Byrne's character. Um, very impressive stream of urine, I have to say, which actually comes into the plot <laughs> later in the film. And this is one of the things where I say they actually show you at the beginning that this is Kaiser Soze. And like, I watched it back, obviously, this week, and I go, how was I this thick <laughs> that I didn't realise this was him? But I don't think anybody did. Like, it was 1995, we didn't have social media, we didn't have spoilers mm. all over the gaff, like. <laughs> but they literally, you literally hear Kevin Spacey's voice saying, how you doing, Keaton? You're like, that's Kevin Spacey. Yeah. When I'm watching it back, you see the gold lighter, you see the gold watch, which he later picks up when he leaves the police station, you know, they hand him his personal effects. Um, 
But the, and the, the urine bit, as I mentioned, comes into it where, he, do you remember in the police station, or yeah, in the police station later on, he says, you know, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I used to get really dehydrated and my, my piss, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> you can bleep it out. You know, my, my piss would be really thick or whatever it was. And even when I was watching that scene, I was going, God, is that urine or what is it? Like, it's a bit... You do not want your piss to be thick. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, not but if it is, please call someone, yes, please. I'm not a urologist, but it was a bit gelatinous looking, so all of that ties, ties in. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry for that. Incredible. <laughs> so... Anyway, where was I? I'm, I'm just... We're, we're on the piss. boat. Yeah, yeah. We're on the boat. The boat. <laughs> we're on the boat. So the boat... So basically there was a boat. There was 27 men killed. You know, we see all this at the start of the film. There's two survivors, one of which is this guy who's like burnt up, Hungarian guy, ends up in hospital. And this uh, other person who is Verbal Kint, a.k.a. Kevin Spacey, um, or Roger, to give him his, his real yes. name, I suppose. Um, so then that was... Was that six weeks ago? So that's... He's telling this in flashback, obviously. It's narrated by Verbal Kint. Um, much like Goodfellas, slightly unreliable narrator. Um, so then we basically cut to these five guys being picked up, a.k.a. the usual suspects, um, and they're being picked up on kind of trumped-up charges, as Keaton calls them, where uh, there was a truckload of guns stolen and mm-hmm. they all end up in this lineup. Uh, but as Keaton says, it's a shakedown. You know, why would they put five, four... Five felons. I'm not sure if we know that Kevin Spacey's felon at this stage. He's actually the kind of more benign among them. Mm. Uh, the other four are kind of very hardened criminals. So they realise there's something going on here. This is this is a setup. You know, why are these five guys being placed in this holding cell together where inevitably they come up with one more job? You know, this mm-hmm. job that they're going to do, which involves taking down New York's finest, which is uh, cops. Cops basically given safe passage to criminals across New York, pick them up from the airport, whatever. So they go ahead and they do that. Um, they end up, this is about three different plot lines in this film, it's very confusing is, yeah. to explain. Um, they go ahead and they do that, and then just that leads to another job and another job. But the the, penult- the ultimate job, rather, uh, the one that we see at the start of the film, is one that involves 91 millions worth of coke or drugs, whatever it was. Um, and they're going to get the profits of that, essentially, if they pull off this job. Now, they're warned it's a very risky job. You may not all make it sort of thing, which obviously they don't because there's only two sole survivors, not a spoiler. Um, and that's that's the crux of it. So, mm. And how did they end up getting that job? This was the job that they had to do for Kaiser Soze. Kaiser, so yes, Kaiser Soze, a.k.a. Kobayashi. Well, we don't know at this point who Kaiser Soze is, obviously, because mm-hmm. it's been told back by, uh, by Verbal Kint. So he's in he's in interrogation basically. Verbal Kind is in this interrogation. He's telling the cop how the five of them came together to, you know, to go on this boat to you know, to do that job. One of the things that they come up between them is the fact that they are all in jail together and that's how they ended up getting all these all these different kinds of jobs. Is Verbal Kint reliable? No, not a bit. No, no, he's lying through his teeth. No, and it's it's one of these things, and this is why this film is so brilliant, because as an audience, I suppose, we're so used to trusting yeah. the narrator. Like, you look at the great films that are narrated, like The Shawshank Redemption, you've got, like, the, the dulcet tones of Morgan Freeman, and you're just lulled into this false sense of security, or something like Stand By Me, where you've got Richard Dreyfus, Dreyfus, however you pronounce it, as grown-up Gordy, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So we immediately just believe, kind of, whatever that the narrator is telling us. I mean, there has been other examples, I think, like Joker more recently, where there was an unreliable narrator, but this is probably one of the most brazen or audacious kind of examples of the narrator lying to you throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, 
No, I, I don't believe that he was lying about everything. I think there were details in it that were probably true. Um, but there's certainly things like, obviously he's lying about, uh, like we see five different versions of Kaiser Soze, I think, in this film. You know, we see the, the guy with the hat. We see the guy with the long hair killing his family. You know, we see very... We at the beginning, like we're told that it was kind of physically impossible for Verbal Kin to have killed, say, some of the other guys mm. like Cockney or McManus or whoever, because he was too far away from them, kind of thing. In his flashback version, um, but I think there's definitely truth in it. Um, yeah. So, like, even with the even with the flashback of the guy with the long hair killing his family, the the character of Verbal Kaiser Soze is based on a guy called John List who did the exact same thing. He was a family annihilator, killed his home family very in a very calm manner, um, walked out, vanished for 30 years, 20 years, and was eventually caught. Who actually, if you've seen The Watcher, uh, John yes. Graff, yeah. who is in that, is also based on the same guy, John List, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but with with Verbal, um, there, is there a way to tell the difference between what he is saying as truth and what he is saying as 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 a lie, like, do we? Is there a way to tell the difference? I don't. I mean, I'm not sure. I think part of the thing with verbal, and again, I'm not sure if this would, if a film would be made like this today, because he's supposed to have cerebral palsy in the film. You know, he's supposed to be disabled. They rather uncharitably refer to him as a cripple throughout the film, or who's the gimp? You know, very mm -hmm. like non PC language nowadays. Um, so for that reason, he's also we also kind of. There's a sympathetic kind of view of him, rightly or wrongly. You know, even Kuyan is like, you're dumb, you know, you're a cripple, you couldn't possibly... Mm. Basically, he's not even in contention for the role of Kaiser Soze. They 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 think it's Keaton, and Keaton was a dirty cop, so they're basically hell-bent on pinning all this on Keaton. Um, is there a way to tell? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I guess the only way we can tell probably what the lies are is if you look really specifically. And, and this is how, of course, we all discover that the whole story is a lie is because he's he's convinced them that it's Keaton. They, you know, um, they've decided, yes, that's him. And he, they let him go. So he goes, he collects his belongings. He's walking out of the the police station. And what happens? We see the pin board behind Kuyan, Chaz Palminteri's character. Um, and we... We see that moment of realisation where he realises he's been duped, he's been played, the coffee cup drops to the ground, is smashed. We see by three different angles of that, which I thought was quite hilarious. Um, and we, we see him saying, oh, the pieces of the story that he fed, like, oh, back when I was picking coffee beans in Guatemala or when I was in a barbershop quartet in Soki, Illinois or wherever it was. Yeah. And these are all little tidbits of information from the, the board behind him, actually, which has been prefaced by... Kuyan saying to the other cop, God, you're a slob, you know, it's, this place is a mess. And he's like, well, you just have to stand back and, and take it all in and it all makes sense. And then it does all make sense to the viewer. And it's that gotcha moment, you know, that we realise it was him all along. Mm -hmm. uh, and the audience, is I guess Kuyan is meant to be like a surrogate for the audience because we're also... I think at a moment I probably did believe it was Keaton towards the end of the mm. film. I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of stacking up for me now. And then you're like... The, the photo fit from the guy in the hospital, the other surviving uh, person from the boat who has given a description of Kaiser Soze is coming through, creaking through the fax machine as, you know, Verbal Kent is kind of limping out of the station. You, at, at that moment, I probably still thought, I, I maybe was starting to slowly realise, okay, it's him. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of take a couple of minutes of realisation because he, he kind of, when he walks out of the of the police station, he, he starts to kind of relax out these kind of various... Um, 
tics almost mm-hmm. that he had kind of during the film, you know, with his crippled, his crippled hand and on his leg and stuff like that. And at that point, when the detective realises and when the, for the time we as the audience realise, he's gone. Yeah, picked up by the, the man, I should say, who was uh, Pete Postlethwaite's character. So he played the Kobayashi oh, character. Yeah. who was supposed to be this lawyer who was the guy, which you asked me earlier, who set up the kind of big job. So, uh, I mean, there's still some people who would say Kobayashi is, or, or sorry, is uh, Kaiser Soze. You know, that he was the first in command and that Verbal Kint, Kaiser Soze, was the second in command. I don't know about that. I think Brian Singer has said himself that he thinks Verbal Kent and Kaiser Soze were one and the same person. Mm-hmm. It was one of the, I think the, the name Soze, uh, it's Hungarian and it means... Drown in words. Yeah, I think so it's the exact, yeah. Verbal. I was yeah, like, oh my God, that, that, that's incredible. But this is, again, part of the, like, all these kind of red herrings that there were, when you watch it back, obviously it's one of those great films because you can watch it kind of for the first time twice. Yeah. Because you see it for the first time, you don't have a breeze what's going on. You watch, even as I watched it back this week, I'm kind of going... Oh yeah, oh yeah, Verbal Kent, I talk too much. Yeah, it's literally the translation mm-hmm. of Kaiser Soze. <laughs> yeah, like the first time I watched it, it was one of those where it was like, oh, this one, because I've always heard the, the term Kaiser Soze in other true crime stories mm-hmm. where the, you know, the, the oh, criminal yeah. is often referred to as a Kaiser Soze. And I was like, who is this criminal? I it's seeped into case, pop culture. But it, it's, it absolutely it's, has. It's been yeah. in everything. It's been in Coor Town. I think it's even been in Dr. Doolittle where he says like, I'm Kaiser Soze. So even mm. if you have never watched this film, you've heard, you've, you've you've heard, heard the, name. the name, which I think, I don't know. I mean, could somebody watch this film now and not know the the twist? I don't know. You, well, the first time I watched it, I didn't. I was on my phone for the whole thing. I was like, this is so boring. Why am I watching this? And I came to the end, I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. I was like, why do I watch it from, like, properly? So then I watched it the second time properly and I was like, oh, but there's I, like, this. When I, watched it, it, I didn't together. watch it when it came out initially in 95. It was probably when I was in college. So it was some years late. Or, no, sorry, I was in secondary school, but it was certainly some years after it came out. But... When it did come out initially, they did this amazing guerrilla marketing campaign where they just had the posters up and it was like, who is Kaiser Soze? I was like, who is Kaiser Soze? Who is Kaiser Soze? Nobody knows. So there was no, it wasn't like now where, you know, for argument's sake, uh, you know, you get spoilers on Twitter, like mm. the latest Spider-Man film. Everybody knew that the twists kind of were whatever cameos that are going to be in it five seconds after it comes out. So I think this is a real time capsule piece as well in that sense. And like, it stands up there alongside some of the greatest twists like The Sixth Sense or, um, I don't know, God, Psycho, where you mentioned uh, Hitchcock, Psycho and Hitchcock. There's another reason, another thing these films have in common mm. where when that film came out, you know, Hitchcock said ban people from going into the, the cinema if they're late because they'll arrive in expecting to see Janet Lee and Janet Lee has already been splattered all over the shower, mm. you know? So I don't know, could you could you show this film now without people knowing? It's brilliant that you did watch it without knowing. So another part of The Usual Suspects, uh, the most iconic scene of all is obviously the lineup scene. This is something that they kind of, there was, it was the conception of the film, as you yeah. said. Tell me about it. What happens? It's it's very funny as well. It's, it's like, yeah. there's not much humour to rate the film. Um, and it's not meant to be a serious film either, but there is, this, this scene is hilarious. They're singing Backstreet Boys, right? And it's it, it's a total, um, it's a total accident that people probably know some of the mythology around the, the scene already. But, um, so obviously you've got the, the five characters, McManus, Hockney, Fenster, am I going to get all these right? Keaton and Verbal Kent obviously Correct. lined up in a row. Uh, and even in the poster, you'll remember that Gabriel Byrne, uh, Dean Keaton, was in the middle, which was yes. another sort of red herring to make you think, well, maybe he's the bad guy, you know? Um, so the scene kind of famously was meant to be played straight. 
Um, and actually, the, the voice that you hear off camera is Christopher McQuarrie, the writer, saying, you know, okay, guys, you know the drill. Step forward, say the line. And the line is like, you know, hand me the fucking keys, you cocksucker. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that again? You're going to beep it, right? <laughs> the beep machine will be going into overload. Actually, there's 90, I read that there's like 98 F-bombs in this film. So that's basically one a minute. So it's kind of hard to talk about it without swearing. But anyway, the scene was meant to be played straight. Uh, so... Uh, Kevin Pollock, who was actually ironically a comedian before he kind of went into acting, he was a stand-up comedian. So uh, even though he played the line straight, he plays the line straight. Then you get to McManus, who was Stephen Baldwin, who goes completely nuts on it, you know. And then the next one is Benicio del Toro, who played Fenster, mm-hmm. who completely cracks up at that point. And as we know, Benicio del Toro also did this voice, which was never part of the script. He just said to Brian Singer, I'm going to do this voice, you know, give me the fucking keys, motherfucker, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. uh, totally unintelligible, uh, where the, the the cop goes, you know, in English, please. Next person obviously cracks up as well. That's Keaton, couldn't keep straight mm-hmm. face until you finally get to Verbal Kent, who actually delivers the line sort of in a sinister, uh, straight-faced way. But seemingly that they spent the whole morning filming that scene, uh, couldn't get, couldn't do it with a straight face. Eventually, they just Brian Singer just spliced it together from all of the different <laughs> takes and said, "All right, we'll just roll with it. like yeah. it is what it is." But also, the other urban legend around that scene is that Benicio del Toro kept farting, <laughs> and that that was the reason that they were they were cracking up. Um, so yeah, I mean that scene alone, like I hate, I hate to use the word iconic, but it is an iconic scene and it has been spoofed so many times, as well as the kind of twist ending has been spoofed so many times as well. Um, it's a great scene. I love it. Sometimes I just go back and watch that scene in mm. isolation. It is quite iconic. Did I just completely make up the fact that they were singing the Backstreet Yeah, I don't know. You're yeah. thinking yeah. of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> is that <laughs> You're thinking of that <laughs> scene correct. in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, that's correct. Tell me why. Oh, yes, I am thinking yeah. of that scene in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I was also getting, an iconic scene, though, yes, I was I was getting the two of them mixed up in my head. That would have been brilliant, though, to be fair. If there's ever a remake, that's what I want to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think this is what I actually love about this film, because there's so many improvised bits in it and I guess because they were he was like only a second time director Brian Singer Christopher McQuarrie they were new they were only 25 or something when they wrote this film mm-hmm. um, they kind of played a bit fast and loose with it like it was 35 day shoot it was like bang 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 so I think they didn't have time to sort of labour over stuff and he gave the actors a lot of flexibility uh, like I say Benicio Del Toro with the voice mm-hmm. um, Kevin Pollock who was a stand-up comedian like improvised a lot of the lines like at the beginning, which show you their personalities. When they're being picked up at the very beginning of the film, uh, you know, we see them all, the cops coming to pick them up, and he's in, like, a chop shop, and they six cops burst in, and he wasn't supposed to say anything. He was just supposed to look in the wing mirror mm-hmm. of the car and see the cops bursting in, but he was like, you sure you brought enough guys? And that stuff stayed in the film, you know, in the interrogation room as well, where he was like, oh, the cop goes, oh, I can place you in Queens on the night of the crime. He's like, I live in Queens. That was in the script. And then he adds... Do you put that together yourself, Einstein? You know, what do you got a team of monkeys working around the clock on this? All of that was not in the script. So I know a lot of direct, like I recently listened to, an, I went to see the Banshees of Inisherin at the weekend and I listened to an interview with Martin McDonough in which he said, he does not allow his actors to do this, absolutely hates this. He says, I'm a better writer than any of the actors, which is <laughs> totally fair. But I think you see what can happen when they go off script, like, that is where the magic lies in the film is between the lines in the script. It's not in the script necessarily, mm-hmm. although the script did win an Oscar, so I can't really say that either. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And I have to ask as well, obviously, uh, in in the in the key of 
the female character that's in this mm. film. We only really see one who is um, Edie Finneran. Mm. Necessary character or just there as a, as a sex symbol? There, I think, to show that Keaton is, has gone straight. You know, the love of good woman is making him go straight. But no, it fails special test here spectacularly. <laughs> There's like, there are actually two, I think there are two female characters in it because I think we see in the hospital where the Hungarian is... Uh, the burnt guy from the, the oh, boat. Oh yeah, I think there's a nurse. There's a female doctor yeah. and some of the worst mask usage of all time. It's hilarious now watching it post-COVID because you're going, put the mask up over your goddamn nose. <laughs> like, what are you doing? The, detect- the FBI guy walks into the hospital smoking a cigar. Walks into a burns unit oh. smoking a cigar. <laughs> so it doesn't really hold up in that sense. Who was on reception that day? Who <laughs> let that happen? Fire them, fire them. Um, but no, I like this genre, I suppose, as a whole is problematic if you're watching it looking for good female representation I suppose because it dates back to kind of the 40s and 50s when the the social mores were that women stayed at home and they were kind of very much in the background Um, and because I suppose if you look at say the godfather is kind of perceived as the the kind of gold standard I guess Mm -hmm. and even in that film as well what you had Kay like it maybe there might have been one kind of female character in each of them but they were very much there as sort of window dressing or as accessories to the men um, which is a bit ironic because that film came out around the time of the, the, I think it was the 50th anniversary of the suffragette movement or something along those lines mm-hmm. so they didn't really reflect the reality of the day but they probably did reflect the reality of the time they were set in um, which is why I guess we can expect more from these films nowadays yeah like there's no excuse for these films nowadays not to have better female representation or we see it more maybe in box sets or streaming even box set streaming one of my 90 <laughs> <laughs> streaming hit the dvds um yeah i think we're seeing an improvement on it but at the same time i think um there ha- like there have been kind of female led gangster films or uh, i think i mentioned widows yes, recently you, you didn't did, i with yes. viola davis I which is a brilliant oh my yeah. god it's yeah. so good yeah it's so good and it's so good it's kind of subverting the expectations of this genre that this you know you got whatever five however many women and kick ass women mm-hmm. um and it kind of proves that it can be done but i do think i wonder if you went to remake something like the godfather or the usual suspects a la Ghostbusters with a female cast That's what the internet saying. would explode yeah. you know they wouldn't be having it and it's not a case of trying to recreate these characters in it. it's just that women weren't in the film industry at that mm. time they were very low down they weren't able to kind of get through the glass ceiling and all that jazz but uh, one of the things is like Goodfellas especially it's a very it's kind of a blokey film it is we're not the target audience for it mm. um, especially as young women um, but it is obviously one of the greatest films of all time and we do have to look as well at, at the usual suspects. Just wondering if the allegations against um, Kevin Spacey, so he was accused of sexual misconduct uh, by Anthony Rapp in 2017, that recently went to a civil court, civil trial, and he was found not liable, but he does have another case coming up at the Old Bailey in next June. Uh, he's facing five counts of, four counts of sexual assault and another um charge there as well. Do you think that those allegations have tinted the lens in terms of this film and how people view it or how people might enjoy or kind of reach out to watch this film? Uh, yes. Very loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> God, we're, we're, we're beginning with this without getting cancelled. Um, 
Well, unfortunately, this film is actually a double whammy because both Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey have both been uh, accused of um, sexual misconduct. Um, now, they're both obviously strenuously denied that. And as you say, the case is coming up next year. Um, but I think it is hard to watch it like post Me Too without having this dark cloud kind of hanging over it. I completely get if somebody would somebody says, I'm not going to touch this film with a barge pole. Mm-hmm. Um, however... There's more than two people involved in making a film. Like, there's hundreds and hundreds of people involved in putting a piece of art like this together. So, can you cancel a film? I don't know. Can you cancel a piece of art? That's the question. Like, you can cancel people. Like, if people want to say, I'm not going to watch anything with Kevin Spacey or anything made by Brian Singer, that's absolutely their prerogative. But I don't I don't know. I think it stands alone as a piece of art, I guess. And stand through the test of time. And the same goes for Goodfellas. will definitely stand through the test of time. Um, great. Nuala and Deirdre, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club, only on Crime World. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>